0: Hey, friends. I just want to welcome you all to our second uh, Theology, and Culture Seminar of the Year. It's good to see you all here. I'm glad you're here. It's a great joy to welcome Dr. Ray Barfield. I'll introduce him in a second, but first, two quick logistical notes. Um, uh, First, in two weeks, we'll be having our third TMC seminar of the semester when Dr. Susan Eastman will be coming and talking. Her talk is entitled... Paul's Anthropology, and the Care of the Person. Um, I hope you'll all be able to make that talk here in this room in two weeks, same time, lots provided. And then uh, also we're trying to um, make these talks accessible through our website, tmc.divinity.duke.edu. And to that end, uh, we're recording the talks, so um, just wanted to flag that for you, that uh, this session will be recorded. If you have uh, a request for something you say that you'd like deleted, we can accommodate such things. So it's a joy to welcome Dr. Ray Barfield today. He's Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Christian Philosophy here at Duke. Um, Ray is a professor, a poet, a pilot, a pediatric oncologist... A palliative care physician, <laughs> a philosopher, plays classical guitar, and pens
1: novels. Mm. Um, any other P words? That's that all. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Yeah, right, right. All right. Yeah,
0: there are maybe some other ones we can use, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll stick with this. Exactly. Um, I'm deeply grateful for Ray's imagination, his witness, and I'll never leave a conversation with him. Without having been deeply affected in some way, mm-hmm. so it's a real joy to welcome you here today to talk about um, imagination and the secret to enduring the practice of medicine. Thank All you. right, thanks. Join me in welcoming you. Um,
1: so my name is Ray, and um, you know usually, what I do when someone asks me to give a talk is forget and then get reminded and show up and basically do an hour of improv. Um, Anyone who knows me um, knows that sometimes it flies and sometimes it doesn't. And um, a lot of times when I'm talking about medicine um, or about medicine and theology, I do talk about the imagination and I talk about storytelling. Um, I usually talk about storytelling in a way that um, is probably transportable into almost any setting where there wouldn't be that many people in the room who would say, you know, I don't even understand what you're talking about. I try to make it applicable to what we do on a daily basis in medicine, and I try to tell some of the ways in which storytelling has helped me as a physician both to grow Um, and at times to survive. But because this is theology, medicine, and culture, I want to do something a little bit different and slightly more boring in one sense. But to me, um, this is... I actually want to tell you all about a core that means a great deal to me um, when it comes to imagination. Because in a room... Where we can talk about theology, um, I will confess that when I talk about stories or metaphors or poems or imagination and the roles that those play in discovery and interaction with other people and with the world, um, I actually have a very deeply mystical sense of what that is, and it's grounded in um, my faith that we live in a universe that is created and that has possibilities for the discovery of purposes that go beyond simply what shows up in our own minds, as important as our own minds are in discovering what those purposes are. And that's not a kind of framing of imagination or imaginative work that uh, generally flies in a medicine grand rounds or something like that. Now, the boring part is that unlike any other time ever, um, I want to read something uh, as a, just a flavor of what I'm talking about. And um, this is from a book that may or may not come out from Erdman's. Um, it's in the acquisition Acquisitions Committee right now, and I'm just waiting to hear from them. They said they're really interested in it, but they um, have to go through the usual hoops and sometimes... They take it, and sometimes they don't. But it's a book called um, Five Acts in a Philosophical Life. And the five acts that I talk about, when I talk about a philosophical life, people who know me know that I'm not generally talking about what happens in philosophy conferences or in academic philosophy departments. Usually, although it happens there too, but usually what I'm talking about... um, is paying you know, genuine, concerted attention to the complexities and wonders of what shows up in a lived life. Um, the tangles of meaning, the experiences of contradiction, the encounters with beauty, the pull of a sense of justice, all the things that show up as our web of meaning as we wake up increasingly, hopefully, over the course of a life, to what it is to live in this strange world. The five acts that I talk about um, are imagining, um, contemplating, praying, loving, and dying. And that's how I sort of split up what I take to be an active philosophical life that's full of wonder. And each of those things is a placeholder um, for ideas that spread beyond what you might generally think about when you think about that word. Um, I don't have a watch. Does someone have a can someone tell me like how much time do I have? Do you know? Do we usually uh, do
0: an hour more? 30? 30, 30 minutes. Uh, well, okay. 15 minutes. All right. <laughs> this fifteen minutes.
1: Okay. So in conclusion. <laughs> Any 30, 30 minutes is the sweet spot. Okay. So I want to read from this because um, I think this sounds different from what my improv usually sounds like. And I'm just going to read for a little while. I'm going to read until I don't want to read anymore. Um, and then I'm going to say a few things, and then we can have a conversation. Is that okay? Okay. One of the things about this seminar is that you know completely prepared things can be brought to it, and also things in progress can be brought to it. And so even though I've finished this book, this is, I brought this in case I wanted to refer to it, but this is where I'm at. Uh, this is my first draft of another book on imagination called Philosophical Imagination in a Created Universe, where I take some of the ideas that I'm going to mention, if I, assuming that I ever get to this, um, I expand them and spend a lot more time on them. Um, all right. So I'm just going to read until I don't want to read anymore. And, and then I'm going to read a little bit out of this, and then we'll talk. This is the first chapter. It's called Imagining. We routinely wake up in the world. We look around. After a while, we ask, what is this place? Our parents often give us the first answer, which they most likely picked up from their own culture. We eventually meet people who are asking the same question, but coming up with different answers from us. They challenge us, and they may scare us. But no matter what worldview we grow up with, eventually we wonder whether or not that view is true. We wonder whether there might be better ways to understand the universe. Experience can lead us to reject worldviews, and it can lead us to affirm worldviews. In either case, the act of stepping away from what's been given to us begins in imagination. Now, I I use hyperbole some, so I'll just apologize ahead of time. For example, imagination is the source of all questions, starting with the words, what if. (laughs) As our capacity to imagine different accounts of reality grows, We can work to sort out the implications of these new images of reality. We figure out how to live our lives. Anyone for whom this is true knows that it matters what sort of universe we live in. We want to know the truth. Imagination's journey into reality doesn't have to go far before we realize that whatever the truth may be, our own grasp of it is never certain. Also, alas the time we have to explore and to commit to it is short. The philosophical life begins in imagination. It reaches past the stories about the world that are handed to us as children, and it proceeds in light of who we are. We are fallible creatures who hunger for reality. Our lives last only a few decades at most. Given these conditions, if we want to flourish in this life, we have to start somewhere. If we cannot find an acceptable somewhere, we'll die without starting. So here's a question that must be asked if we're going to start down the road of living well. Is the universe created by God, or is it uncreated? And that seems to me a fundamental divide. I believe the universe was created by God. Those who believe there is no God, or that the origin, sustenance, and purpose of the universe has nothing to do with God, would give a different account of the philosophical life than the one that I propose but every account must start somewhere <clears throat> in the final canto of the divine comedy dante has a supreme as a vision of the supreme light that overwhelms him this is what he writes our human speech is dark before the vision he describes a rapturous form of contemplation that pushes poets philosophers seekers and lovers to press on in hope, risking wild error rather than settling on a timid version of what is possible in the universe and what is true. The canto, canto 33, um, here's a few verses from the canto. And so it was, as I recall, that I could the better bear to look until at last my vision made one with the eternal good. O grace abounding, that had made me fit to fix my eyes on the eternal light until my vision was consumed in it. I saw within its depths how it conceives all things in a single volume bound by love, of which our universe is the scattered leaves. Substance, accident, and their relation so fused that all I say could do no more than yield a glimpse of that bright revelation I think I saw the universal form that binds these things. For as I speak these words, I feel my joy swell and my spirits warm. So anyone who's living like Dante in a single volume bound by love of which the universe is the scattered leaves is going to find adventures that are worth a whole life. In a universe like Dante's, religious and scientific acts can help us to glimpse the light. The veracity of discoveries can reliably be tested in part by the ways that joy swells up and warms our spirits. But this only makes sense in a created world. Only in a created world can a poet grasp a metaphor, seeing in this, that, and believe that a real connection has been discovered, illuminating the way in which anything is bound by love. The bond in a created world is not the sort that makes the universe an homogenous, amorphous lump, all reducible to the same stuff. Creation is the necessary condition for meaningful differentiation. I talk a lot about reductive materialism, as you all know, anyone who's taken classes. And in reductive materialism, because everything ultimately is one stuff, insight into the meaning of one thing through the meaning of another thing which is the work of metaphor, is in the end senseless, or at least it's just made up. There's no meaningful universe, sorry, there's no meaningful unity in that kind of universe because there's no meaning in the universe beyond my own local experience and yours. But in a created universe, real bonds might be grasped through reciprocally illuminating differences (coughs) And I think that it's only creative love that makes that relation possible. The significance of metaphor is one aspect of imagination that is transformed if the universe is created. A second aspect is the strangeness in the world that imagination reveals. Strangeness arouses wonder when we first encounter it without understanding. And wonder inspires speech, music, painting, or dance, when we do begin to grasp it and want to show a glimpse of what we see. So I know more about poetry than the other arts, and that's what I tend to focus on here. In a created world, the strangeness at the heart of so much great poetry suggests that the literal and the literary views of the world are not so far apart. For someone trying to get to the real nature of things, Poetry that evokes a sense of spirits in the forest trees helps us to reach the truth of trees, (coughs) at least as much as botany does. This is the work of poetry in a created world, transformed by the shocking revelation that love is at the heart of the universe. (coughs) Poetry becomes an imaginative act of tumbling into an unfamiliar light and trying to say what it is that we see. Eventually, we learn to contemplate things that are illuminated by poetry's beam. The work of poetry is transformed by the nature of the universe. If the universe is created, poetry can become a discovery, an act of seeing reality more truly through the created imagination. So what does this mean? What is this power of the poetic imagination? One way to answer this is to listen to a poet who doesn't believe in God, but who retains a desire for the contours of strange things to mean something. And and this is one of my favorite poets, Wallace Stevens. He wrote, after one has abandoned belief in God, poetry is that essence which takes its place as life's redemption. Stevens had a potent account of the power of the poetic imagination to mediate, to conceal, or to distort reality. Poetry can give meaning to the world as we experience it, he thought. It can, Stevens says, give meaning to life through what he calls the supreme fictions without which we are unable to conceive of it. Stevens' understanding of poetry's power and its necessity in the absence of God helps us to grasp the power of the poetic imagination. Ask a question. What would the result be if he was right about the poetic imagination's power, but wrong about the existence of God? In a world created by God, the place and function of poetry can only be understood in relation to God because the poetic imagination is among the things that God created as God created the world. For Stevens, the universe is empty of God, and it is teetering on being empty of meaning. Poetry is pressed into service as the instrument and gift of the poet in a universe that is meaningless apart from his or her response to it. It's the made thing which is the basis for poetry, poesis, which means making, It's the made thing that gives meaning to the world of nature in a way that things rising up in nature, like a bird or a bush, can't do. Now, this is something that Wallace uh, Stevens says in one of his most famous poems, which is this. I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground and tall and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush like nothing else in Tennessee. I love that poem because um, the, the image is this sprawling disordered wild wilderness and he places this jar in the center of it that becomes a kind of focus for order and orientation but in Wallace Stevens' world there's only wildness there's no there's no inherent meaning <laughs> in anything and yet and you can think of the jar either as a poem that is itself a supreme fiction that imposes a kind of order on the wilderness that's sprawling around, but now that the poem is there, it's no longer wild because we're imposing the supreme fiction. Or you can think of the jar as the poet's mind, the poet's imagination that's imposing this order. Nonetheless, in Wallace Stevens' world, all of the order, all of the meaning is imposed, because how could there be any meaning inherent in the world around him? Now, naming used to be one way that we participated in the act of creation it still is it just has a little bit different flavor in our culture after god formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air out of the ground something wonderful happened god brought them to and and the well god brought sorry this god brought them to man is how how this particular verse is reading um to see what he would call them, brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. A created universe is full of meaning, and poetry is the naming of things. In Genesis, naming is delighted in by the creator. It's a means of discovery for us as we live among created forms. Responding to the created forms and naming them may even be a way that we come to know God, and God comes to know us. But when language no longer shows us true things about the world, and when there is no God for divine names to reveal, our minds, like Stevens, encounters the specter of meaninglessness. So Wallace Stevens uses poetry to recover the power of naming. His recapitulation of Genesis in the absence of God presses the limit of what poetry is and does, and it's why he's been such a powerful and influential poet. His poetry is pleasurable, enlivening, and puzzling. It often reaches towards things colorful and concrete, even if they're not easily intelligible. He sometimes sounds like a mystic, describing an encounter with God in nature, in (coughs) prayer, or in contemplation, but with no God. His poems stand against meaninglessness. They're driven by the endless fuel of darkness from beyond the last palm, threatening our minds that long for meaning. For Stephen's darkness is seeping into the boat. Because we're in the middle of a dark ocean, we fill our buckets over and over, trying to keep the boat dry and habitable and afloat. Above the Endless Darkness. This is the work of Stevens' poetry. There's an excitement in the mind of Stevens in his response to the empty universe. He creates a strange sense of limit and portrays the adventure of a mind stretching toward that limit. Here's a poem from him. The palm at the end of the mind, beyond the last thought, rises in the bronze decor a gold feathered bird sings in the palm without human meaning without human feeling a foreign song you know then that it is not the reason that makes us happy or unhappy the bird sings its feathers shine the palm stands on the edge of space The wind moves slowly in the branches. The birds' fire-fangled feathers dangle down. But what happens if this kind of poetic power discovers that this wind is actually a wind from God? What if the breath of poetry is the same wind that swept over the face of the waters just before God said, let there be light? Even if Stevens is right, that it is not the reason that makes us happy or unhappy, the character of that wind matters. Stevens thinks that it's important that poetry exists in consciousness as an event. The meaning of consciousness is one of the mysteries that depend upon what sort of universe we inhabit. If the universe is created, the character and potential of consciousness is very different than in a world where it's merely the byproduct of accidental material events. In an accidental, purposeless world, the deepest question anyone can ask about consciousness is how such a thing ever arose from mindless matter and energy. Since consciousness is the sole home for poetry in the universe, the true nature of consciousness is part of the true nature of poetry. Because of this, the nature of poetry can illuminate the workings of consciousness. Against the background of creation, understanding the relationship between poetry and consciousness can clarify other acts that occur in consciousness alone, things such as contemplation or prayer or love. All of these can in turn deepen our understanding of death, including what is threatened and what is hoped for. Poetry is more than sounds or signs. I'm only reading there. <laughs> poetry is more than sounds or signs. The very same signs written on a page or sounds uttered by a voice may accomplish the event of poetry in one person, but not in another. They may accomplish the event of poetry in one age, but fail completely to do so in another age. But what if poetry? <clears throat> what is poetry if it is not merely words on a page? Through metaphor, our minds connect spring with birth and waking, winter with death and sleeping. Does it matter to our understanding of poetic imagination if seasons, waking, sleeping, imagination, and language are all parts of a created world? This is a strange question. In a non-created universe, there is homogeneity in a sense because everything is finally made of the same stuff, stuff that just showed up. Form and purpose don't have existence in the deep sense that stuff has. But a created universe is unified because it's intended. Things are not merely more of the same, but rather each form, each form is in some way contingent upon the intent or action or motive or sustenance of a creator for its beginning, its being, and its end. The Apostle Paul said, Star differs from star and glory. Such a view transforms any inquiry into the nature of the poetic imagination. Because in such a universe, poetry resides in minds that can meaningfully find real connections in the world. Individual poems are made to get the mind somewhere, to get the mind to places that can only be arrived at in this way. Poetry shows us the susceptibility of creation to metaphor, allowing our minds to be meaningfully susceptible to poetry. There is homogeneity, or unity, but in a created world, our sense of this unity can be called poetic wisdom. In a created world, this unity is what Wallace Stevens reached for in his idea of a supreme fiction. But if the world is created, Stevens' supreme fiction is not merely fictional. So, this in itself isn't an argument that the world is one way or another. The only point is that our commitment to a view of reality determines the range of possible questions we ask about the meaning of conscious acts, such as poetry. The question extends to the broader sense of poetry that Plato wrote about, in which poems, music, and the other arts are all manifestations of poetry in the sense of um, discovery through making. Each art shows something different about minds and the world and the relationship between minds and the world. Because poetry is bound up with imaginative experience, it's easy to slip into a kind of thinking that contrasts so-called reality With imagination. But that slip moves too fast and prematurely limits our grasp of what constitutes reality. In a created world, imagination might be able to get to the inner truth of things, or to say the same thing in a different way, to see the inner truth of things as they wonderfully show up. The connection among things in a created world is their common source in the person of the Creator. This makes it possible to see the way the world shows up in its appearances as invitations to the mind. Not because the appearances passively lie out there while active minds strolls among static forms, but rather because appearances call to us actively and our minds respond. This is a very Augustinian kind of idea. In a created world, poetry is both odd and exciting. The experience of poetry becomes a recognition of true transformation of the world as it interacts with our minds. I was going to read the rest of this, but um, but I'll just stop there. Because all I really wanted to do was to try to be suggestive in, in saying that um, in a room like this, where we can extend into the, into the, the possibility that in a created universe... Um, our created imagination is reaching into the world which is created, is being drawn by the world which is calling to us because it's intended and created and purposeful and meaningful. Our imaginative function is something that we can speculate about fallibly but do so in some exciting and surprising and unexpected kinds of ways. Now, I want to read briefly. Does this go to one? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go to... Five more, what's that? A few minutes after one. Okay, I'm going to do just for a few minutes, I want to read something from um, this novel that got me in trouble. And it's about, um, I just want to read, um, so this is a novel that is about a mind, um, a mind that I think is a very beautiful mind. Um, the person who is inhabiting the mind is named Islea, a young woman. And she is, um, she lives in the middle of uh, some pretty awful um, cliches and um, imposed kinds of limits. Because she's young, she's black, She's single, she's pregnant, and she lives in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, Among the cliches, the offensive cliches that she was raised among are that she was born into a crack house, to a crack addict, who is a single mom, and just, you know, you can add on, just take one stereotype after another and add it on to Islea, and that is the world that she lives in. That's the background. And taken as a background, it is a caricature, a stick figure. It is the opposite of what you would ever hope for uh, your beloved to be born into or to walk among. It's hyperbolic um, because every aspect of her world, in some sense, involves offensive cliche. But it's against that sort of um, created structure that her mind emerges. And her mind, her mind emerging against that kind of, of caricature of being poor, black, single, female, pregnant in Memphis, Tennessee, is the counterpoint that sets up the surprises of the beauty of her mind. She only went through ninth grade. Her vocabulary is limited. She can't paint with any big words. Nonetheless, despite the limitations of her constructed culture, her starting place, her fears, her vocabulary, and her education, what emerges is what I tried to get to um, in, in, a, in a sort of a, 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 an expression of a beautiful mind. And um, so this is her. This is just a brief chapter of her. And this, to me, is an example... Uh, a different kind of way, a different kind of take on imaginative shift. And so the things that I was talking about in this more philosophical kind of thing are trying to reach towards the possibilities of what imaginative discovery can mean in a created universe. But here's a picture of what Islea's mind looks like as it makes a much smaller shift on the level that um, many of our patients might make in the course of coming up against the sudden realization that they're vulnerable, that they're mortal, that they're soon to experience a great shift in their life, which may be a shift in the direction of something wonderful and positive, maybe having a baby, or a shift in the direction of something terrifying, maybe dying, maybe losing fertility, maybe losing a leg. but this is uh, one brief chapter, and, and the only point of this is, what it look, is, is an example of what it looks like to have a tiny imaginative shift. I started my day's work feel, uh, feeding bread with butter and sugar on it to Rose. Even when she was feeling bad, she'd eat bread with butter and sugar on it. But she must have had a fitful night, too, because she ate one piece and went back to bed. So I took the other piece with me into the kitchen and poured a glass of milk. I was sitting there with my head hanging down over the glass of milk, looking at how white it was. Nothing else was going through my mind except how white the milk was, even though normally I'd be thinking about how they organize everything you need to get a glass of milk. Everything from cows to glue machines that close up the carton though that last part needs some work since half the time you can't get the spout open after the first step of opening the carton. But all I was thinking about was white. Then a drop of blood fell from my nose into the glass of milk. As soon as it hit the milk, pink ran out to the edges, and I didn't care at the moment how pretty it was because it scared me. Women know a lot more about blood than men, And if you want someone to help you with a bloody nose you got in a fight, or a toenail that got pulled back when you stubbed your toe, go to a woman. But those things are expected. I hadn't picked my nose or anything, so this was different. Blood in an unexpected place is scary, especially if it shows up when you're paying attention to the white of milk and for once not thinking about anything else. No more blood dropped. I held a napkin to my nose just in case, but mostly I stared at the pink milk. I began to feel afraid, like this was a sign that something bad was gonna happen. Or worse, that something bad had already happened that couldn't be changed. The same as there's no way to get the pink out of the milk. It wasn't like being afraid of the man with tattoos or any one thing, like dying. Or the baby dying, though you might think my first thought was that it was a sign about the baby, since that would make sense. It was just fear. I ate the bread with butter and sugar on it and waited to see what would happen next. And what happened next was that I asked myself what I have that matters, which was not what I expected to happen. But fear does that sometimes. At the white school, The principal used to come to class and read us Robinson Crusoe. I felt like everybody looked at me when he started talking about Friday, and I tried to think about how I could ask for a bathroom pass without everybody staring at me more. But pretty soon, I just wanted to hear the story. After that, it was my favorite time of the school day, and before he came, I always made sure my notebooks were in my desk and my pencils were in the sandwich bag I had to carry my stuff in, and everything was neat, because I just wanted to listen. After a few weeks, when the story was finished, all I wanted was for the principal to start over, even though I knew he was going to move to the next class, since our teacher had told us this was his way to get to know us, and to let us get and to let him get to know us, we should behave when he came. So when he read the last line and closed the book and everybody clapped and started putting their stuff to go home, I did the same because it's important not to just sit there since people will ask why you're just sitting there and I didn't want to say I was thinking about the story. But when I got my stuff together and started to walk out, I didn't know why, but the principal came over to me and gave me his copy of the book and he didn't say anything to me but that I know how to listen to a story, and he would be honored if I would have his copy. And I was as happy as I have ever been. I wished I could tell him that the reason I didn't say thank you or say anything else, but just stood there holding the book, then put it in my paper sack and smiled and ran. Because you probably couldn't figure out that it was the first book anybody gave me that I didn't have to give back including the great book of world transportation, which I found in the house, but which technically did not belong to me. That night, I opened it up as carefully as if it had money in it, and I started reading it. I especially liked the beginning, because when he found himself on an island by himself, he didn't do what I would have done back then, which is to get all worried about this and that, but instead he made a list of what he had, So I looked at my glass of pink milk and thought about what I had. And first I thought fear. I had fear and I could look at it and wonder about it and feel it, which added wonder and feeling to the list. Most everything else I had was inside the house. I had the raccoon and all my thoughts about how it's to be put together. I had my stained glass window that I was thinking about which was beautiful in my mind. I had Rose, who was dying and who would give me this house. I had the baby from Jimmy. Then there was Jesus, Jesus' donkey, walking around in the yard, (coughs) the only living thing that could nuzzle Ambrosia without being hit. There was Jimmy, and there was Layla's dark heart. So my list was this, a kind of fear, a kind of wonder, a kind of feeling, a kind of order, a kind of beauty, death, birth, My story, sin, and God. I needed to go up and get the bread and wine. I needed the body and the blood. I needed the resurrection of the Lord. That's jumping right into it. Not running away, but letting it sweep right over you. The body and the blood. I took up my glass of pink milk and I drank it down. All the way. And I wiped my mouth on my arm. It seemed like there was nothing I could do about the fear, but plunging right into it made me feel better. I had so much to think about that a life didn't seem long enough to get through it all. I started to wish I'd finished high school so I could go to college and learn about this. But how could that ever happen? I would have to sort things out on my own, the way Rose did. So that's, that's this layup. And that's kind of how she does things with what she has a hold of and um, so for me um, you know the topic of this talk is about imagination and how it helps us to endure in medicine um, and mostly that title came because Brett insisted that I write a title to him three months ago and was like I don't know how about imagination and how we endure in medicine mm. but in fact I think that this is um, if we drill down in the deep way that it's possible for people who are willing to engage not simply in the facts that show up in the beautiful science that occurs in medicine and not simply in constructed forms of meaning that we make in our you know, sort of pluralistic settings where we try to run ethics committee meetings and do palliative care consults and deal with people from all these different backgrounds. But in this kind of room where we actually have the possibility of speaking across the boundaries of theology, medicine, and culture. And for me, this is a topic that um, is part of deepening our formation as healers, whether it's in the form of chaplains or physicians or nurses or, or people who will simply be taking care of someone that we love, who's vulnerable, where we allow our imaginations to grow past our assumptions, but where we do so in the hope that as our imagination reaches, um, not only are we going to be changed in that imaginative reach, But because there is a kind of order and beauty and meaning and purpose to the universe as a created universe, we may even be in for some discoveries um, that surprise us. And for me, where medicine brings together not only the wonders of science and of the physical world, where we're touching and studying the touchable, but also the thresholds, thresholds like death or thresholds like loss and medicine that becomes a cauldron for asking questions of why and for coming up against uncertainties. To me, it seems like that world is, I can't think of a more poignant, powerful setting for imaginative growth. And I can't think of a more exciting kind of frame uh, regarding imaginative growth than from the inside of a Christian worldview in which we can be excited about the possibility of discovering meaning in surprising places and surprising ways. So for me, it's transformative in the way that I look at medicine, how what I name as the parts of medicine, how I practice medicine. Um, and I bring this into the room when I'm talking with patients, even though they might not know. So that's why I wanted to share this, because I don't usually talk about that aspect of the storytelling part but this is the part that I'm really trying to grow in my own spiritual life, my intellectual life and in the deepening of my sense of what vocation is uh, since most of what I do is doctoring so I'll stop there and see if, um, if there's anything, any discussion or observations or <coughs> questions
0: we've got 20 minutes for conversation
1: so okay You said allowing our imagination to grow past our assumptions. I mean, it's a beautiful sentence, and I think I can grasp what it means, but I guess more practically, or in your setting, how do you bring that into actual patient care? And what would that look like? So, you know, I have one of the things, and those of you who are in, I teach this class um, with a couple of friends called, um, I don't know, I can't remember what it's called, but it's something like medicine and storytelling. And um in it uh, yes so those of you who were in there yesterday know that i'm like i'm trying I'm still trying to figure out how to articulate this this understanding of the imagination that that I, in, I feel like I'm intuiting, but I don't know quite how to say it but for me um, for the, for those who weren't in class so i you know, my body is very defined. I mean, my nose, like, literally stops there. It doesn't. It doesn't go any farther than that. Um, you can define quantitatively, um, in principle, everything in my body, every chemical, every cell, every process, every enzyme, everything. And so. I really am, you know, quite a package. <laughs> I, am, I am tied up. The loose ends are tied up. I am unified. And, and, and I, am, I am quantifiable. Imagination, my imagination doesn't feel like that to me. It, it doesn't feel like a thing that I um, inhabit with the same boundaries. It doesn't feel like a thing that I... In a sense, I don't know, own's probably the wrong word, but I'll just use that as a as a word. It doesn't feel like a kind of thing that I really own, you know, my imagination. And the reason is because my imagination is populated by so many voices that aren't mine. Tell us more about it. <laughs> Let me, uh, I, I yeah exactly yes yeah. exactly I knew that I was setting him up for that this was a complete gift just like it was to you so you're welcome far so there are these people in my imagination and um, what's interesting about the, peop- the people that populate my imagination and the voices that are there um, that are very different from anything I would conjure myself but but when I'm paying attention, you know, they're all there um, is that I have things, you know, to learn from from them and I can tell you that the reason that, that I've started talking about imagination in this strange way where I don't own it and where it's bigger than my own brain it extends out you know it reaches is because in part well because of something like this because in the process of writing things show up in the writing for me more and more that just aren't me you know and so they're clearly borrowed they're they're i have been taught them by someone or by something now in the mystic tradition um, you know, there's a very deep sense in which contemplative prayer is a kind of opening up to the mystery of God with the hope that some things are going to appear on the horizon that would not appear if we did not open ourselves to this kind of imaginative engagement with reality with a big R, you know? And so to me that's very exciting, a very adventurous uh, a very, you know, in, in 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 the proper biblical sense, frightening kind of, of prospect. So when I talk about reaching beyond, you know, my assumptions, I mean that there's this this space, this imaginative space that um, is not limited in the same way that my own body is limited. But it seems to me like it it, it 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 exists with almost like concentric rings, and there is a tight little circle that is probably the part of the imagination that I really do own, and I've got it populated with all my favorite little ideas and all my you know how I think about this, how I think about that, who I'm pissed off at, my resentment, my you know just all these like little things and some of them are nice and some of them are like little goblins and some of them, you know, are repetitive and they go in cycles, and I realize, you know, I've been driving for 30 minutes and I missed my whole book on tape because I'm rehearsing some dumb idea that I should have let go of twelve years ago. And and so there is this like tight little imaginative circle. But I think part of the the practice of meditation and of prayer and of um, silence in the presence of another who's telling you a story that's different than your own, is that it cracks open this inner <laughs> consent part, you know, of these concentric stories. It just cracks it open, and it lets some light come in and some air. Um, and it also gives you hints that there are things beyond the the... The, this horizon of all my little assumptions, all my little resentments, all my, this is who I am, this is what I own, this is what I'm mad at, this is what I love, this is me, 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 me. And that practice seems to me uh, fundamentally motivated by and sustained by love. Mm-hmm. I think that love is absolutely at the core of this willingness to not, to, not, not, not in self-judgment or self-hatred, or anything like that, but just in the sense that there is more to the world than myself. And so I relax into the light that streams in and the air that's coming in. And as I get better at this, I begin to walk towards the edges of my safe little inward world, my set of anger and resentment and self-images, and I peak, you know, and what's curious about um, you know, so at one level, anyone, no matter what kind of universe we live in, we live in a universe of other persons, uh, or at least we live in a world of other persons, and you know, and probably a universe of other persons. And um, and so when we creep to the edge, if we're approaching things in this way, in this loving way, theist or non-theist, other people can call us into um, uh, an imaginative space that's bigger than our own little world. But in a created world, th- that can be extrapolated. So when I walk into a patient's room now, um, at the door, I, I, on my good days, I have an inward like thing that I do that's very much like a brief moment of meditation where I try to let go and be prepared to be changed by what I encounter in the room and um, there's this thing that happens between me and patients and I'm learning how to let it happen more and more it's taken me years to even discover that it exists but, um, but it is a thing that can be fostered and nurtured and so that's what I mean mm-hmm. Yeah. my question Tom, piggybacks on to what you just said because I want to know when you meet patients do they for example perceive a spirituality in you or, what kind of take do do patients typically have when they first meet you? Well, so I make sure to turn up the halo. <laughs> no. They, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know what they perceive when I walk in the room. I mean, sometimes I know. I've had people. But they don't, they don't for example, say. Some do, some don't. I mean, when I walk in the room, I mean I've had, you know, and, and especially if it's if they, you know, if I'm not there, well, so if I'm there, if I walk into the room, so someone's admitted to the general service, the general medical service, and I come in and I say, you know, hey, um, I'm Ray Barfield, I'm one of the physicians here. You can call me Ray. Um, I'm from oncology. <coughs> you know, that's a, we're done. I got work to do. Uh, If I walk in and I say, uh, hey, my name is Ray Barfield, I'm one of the physicians here, you can call me Ray, I'm from Palliative Care, (laughs) we're done. Um, If I walk in and I look like someone who's hurt you in the past, we've got work to do to overcome it. Um, If I walk in and, um, and you're an African American patient and family who has been on the bone marrow transplant unit for an entire month and there hasn't been a single African American who's come into your room because the entire staff is white and I walk in as a white man, we have work to do. Um, If I walk in and a person um, has, because of financial and cultural circumstance, um, been frustrated their entire life and never able to go to college, and I walk in and I have a little badge that says Ray Barfield, M.D., Ph.D. We may have work to do, to overcome. So there's there's almost always something in there, um, and and it goes my direction too. You know that's part of what I'm learning to let go of at the door. But uh, in the course of conversation, though, it's amazing what can be overcome, and it's amazing what can be discovered in there. And very often, the, the, the hardest thing, well, for me, to overcome is when the starting point is that I've been called to do a consult for a family who's angry. And so I walk into the room, and the room is already full of anger. And that's very hard for me because my, my, I have a very deep fight-or-flight response to anger directed at me. And because this is my work, very often flight's not an option. And so it turns into defensiveness, fight. And that doesn't work, and I've had to learn to let that go. So no, no one, no one, and very often when I walk out of the room, they don't have any idea about the spiritual stuff because I haven't done it very well. I mean, I, you know, I, I am on a learning curve, Um, but I know, but I've had enough of enough glimmers that I kind of, I kind of know like how I think, you know, it probably ought to be how it would be great if it could be like that more often, and how I wish it were like more often, you know. But sometimes it does work, and, and the two of us... Yesterday I met a 17-year-old who suffered from pain and chronic fatigue for eight years for reasons that no one understands, and they're starting to think she may have a mitochondrial problem. Um, and I walked out of the room. Um, it, it took me an hour just to get ready for the rest of my day because I encountered such a profound spirit. In this 17 year old girl who had suffered for eight years, you know, so it goes both ways. All right, yeah.
0: it, might it be fair to say, too, that like illness requires this imagination of our patients? Because I seem like uh, I'm a hospice, I work in hospice, and it seems like when I go in, people sort of understand that their lives may not go the way they wanted them to, and then they have to reimagine what their lives can be now mm-hmm. and so in order to undergo this <coughs> process of dying peacefully and well they have to sort of sometimes reimagine everything
1: they thought would happen yeah i mean there's this there's a, i think there's that that's a very good point and there's probably a sense in which a great deal of the suffering that comes from the cycle of resentment comes from an inability to reach imaginatively into into possibilities, you know, ways of framing this unexpected experience. The thing is, is that in the end, everything is unexpected. It was unexpected that I would even show up <laughs> in this world, you know. But when it turns out to be something that truncates possibilities that you either were hoping for or planning on or, or, or felt like you deserved, um, yeah, without that reframing, I think that, that, I think there's a huge amount of suffering when we can't, change our the imaginative landscape which is not to say the fake fault mythical magical or anything else landscape i mean you know um, it has real consequences in our lived experience of unexpected suffering right can, Are we
0: classic no no, no yeah. um so so I think, this is really lovely i love the passage from the chapter you read for us. Um, I mean, both from both, but especially the project you have working on now. I, I love the, I can see how the idea of imagination allowing, no matter what broken situation you're in, a glimpse of the beating love that's at the heart of the universe, mm-hmm. the way you described Dante, That's really, that's lovely. Um, and so my question is, uh, um, is isn't necessarily an attack on all that, but I'm wondering if you can help me understand. Uh, so one, one way that could go is just a pretty, like, you could be a Neoplatonist and think all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and so I guess my basic question is, wh- what does Jesus matter for your imagination? Mm-hmm. Um, and how you described the relationship to the imagination that created universe. How do you see... I mean, I heard it in this layout, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering from Ray... How, uh, how is your imag- imagination mediated through uh,
1: the cross? Well, one thing, so so I'll say, so a couple of things. Um, one is that um, if we lived in a Neoplatonic universe, I would think that this is a very beautiful version of the universe. You know? Like, if that was true. Um, I'm a Christian. And... So there's, you know, there's one sense in which when I talk about imagination as a Christian and talk about these kinds of things, um, the, the, um, the person to whom I'm grateful for these emerging things I'm discovering about imagination is Jesus. So there's one sense in which I have a name for the for who I'm grateful to. Um, so th- so there's that you know, I mean there are ways in which if I was a non-theist or if I was a neo-platonist, <coughs> part of my understanding of the imagination would be the same as they are as a Christian. I just know who to thank in a different kind of way. Now that's not the whole story by any means because. Um, In Christianity, I think that what, if there, I mean, there, at least one thing that we've learned from the incarnation is that bodies matter. I mean, at least one thing that we've learned from the incarnation is that the Lord is not a Neoplatonist. (laughs) You know? And so, to me, the physical, um, body of Jesus walking among us, you know, eating fish, touching people, stubbing his toe, dying, being resurrected, Um, that to me is something that is profoundly enlivening to an imagination that lives in a physical world. Because it transforms my sense of the value of physical creation, of bodies as they show up, whether they're the bodies of people or the stars, as the Apostle Paul said. Star differs from star in glory. You know, as a Christian, I can actually listen to Paul say, Star differs from star in glory, and I can say yes, instead of just reverting to talk about the ratio of helium to hydrogen in, in these various stars. I can talk about glory because glory is an aspect of physical things. And this is something that Jesus taught us in the Incarnation in a way that nothing else could possibly teach us beyond you know, God becoming a person, walking among us. And then, stunningly, even more stunningly than showing up as a body, Um, being resurrected as a body with wounds, capable of eating fish, and ascending as a body. So that means that this value of the physical world is not something that simply, it was sort of a a little story where, yeah, you know, I wandered among you, and then I went back to business as usual, being the Gnostic, Neoplatonic God. This is a permanent feature of the universe. And so to me it's transformative in the way that we respond to bodies and to creation as it shows up, um, as it literally shows up, which every time it shows up, it shows up as a body. And so to me that's what, what specifically a Christian imagination does, is it transforms our imagination's relationship to, the, to creation as it shows up. So it's not this kind of, you know, one of the things about Wallace Stevens, um, and Wallace Stevens would have loved being a Christian if he could have just gotten there, because it would have helped him to remedy some of his more abstracting tendencies. You know, the way that he achieved a kind of sense of fictional um, immortality, fictional relation to to, to something that in poetry feels like the equivalent of mathematical truths is to abstract and um, I think that what Jesus does for us is that we can embrace a lot of what Wallace Stevens discovered about the imagination and say, oh, but Wally (laughs) which is what his friends called him Wally, that's beautiful but there's so much more to the story, let me show you and if he could have gotten there, I think he would have been very excited about it does that make sense? no,
0: no, it does, yeah maybe time for one, one more I was gonna ask, um, talking about imagination in a world, especially maybe oncology, where it can it can honestly be the enemy in some people's minds, like a patient imagines a miracle and mm-hmm. can't come to grips with reality and you know you're looking at clinical trials with all data and something you can measure and see. How do you fit imagination into your discussions with colleagues and, and patients and into that world of basic science?
1: I, I, well, you know. And 60 seconds or less. Yeah. So, 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 ha, so I don't. Um, into, I don't, because often there's just no room in their perspective, in, in my colleagues' perspective on what constitutes reality. Um, in a room, that's why I took advantage of this room um, in the best possible way, I hope, to say things in a different way than I usually say them when I'm in um, a venue where we're talking about I mean it's radical enough to talk about medical humanities. People are like, whoa, medical humanities, man. That ain't science. <laughs> you know? So there's no way that what you people work. what y'all do, yeah, Exactly. So what y'all do in this room every time you have one of these seminars is radical beyond anything that I think I mean this is what you do in this room is fundamentally radical. You know? And so I don't, pragmatically speaking, fit it into that world. Um, But uh, there are times that, like, if I'm talking to someone who um, is is imagining a miracle and the miracle doesn't look like it's coming, well, then we have some work to do because there is a place the imagination can go. And it relates also to the practices of contemplation and prayer that may get them to a realization that even though imagining a miracle – was a step in the direction of hopeful possibility. They haven't gone far enough. Because sometimes imagining a miracle um, is not opening yourself to the possibility of God. It's limiting the possibility of God. And if you can get to um, possibilities even beyond miracle, then you might be getting to a deeper truth uh, about God. And that itself can be liberating even as you breathe your last breath on this earth. You know, so I'll go there. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much.